Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is a podcast where I ask people to tell me the five things from their life, any time in their life, that they would like to have preserved in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is John Ronson. John is a British journalist, author and documentary maker, born in Cardiff. He began his career as a journalist, writing for various British publications such as The Guardian, Time Out and The NME. John has written nine best-selling books, including The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was later adapted into a feature film starring George Clooney, and The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. His books have been translated into more than 30 languages. John became a naturalised American citizen in the early 2020s and is a supporter of Humanist UK and Arsenal. Well, he can't get everything right. John's first fictional screenplay, Frank, co-written with Peter Strawn, starred Michael Fassbender. And John has also produced and presented several documentaries for television and radio, including the critically acclaimed The Secret Rulers of the World and The Crazy Rulers of the World. 
He's been a regular contributor to the BBC Radio 4 programme Saturday Live and has also hosted his own radio show, John Ronson On, which explored various topics such as conspiracy theories, what makes a psychopath and pornography. Yep, typical BBC. His latest project, The Everyday Story of a Tulsa Debutante Turned White Supremacist Spokeswoman Turned Undercover Informant for the US Government, you know the sort of thing, who, as a result of a series of unlikely and often very bad life choices, found herself in the midst of one of the most terrible crimes ever to take place in America, is available now on Audible, entitled The Debutante. There's a link to it in the blurb alongside this episode. Right, that's John Ronson's career, Preceed. But what about his life and the five things from it that he'd like to have in a time capsule? Well, let's find out, shall we? Here is the very lovable John Ronson. Hello. Hello, <laughs> John. How are you? I'm good. I'm so sorry for my tardiness. I, I, that's, I just... What, two minutes past? That's not tardiness. No, that's enough to put me in a, in a <laughs> You're like me. Oh, my God, two seconds past. I really apologise for being so late. <laughs> Are you one of those people I turn up for meetings and stand there exactly at the time, usually just before, mm. and then wait for about 20 minutes and people walk in and go, hi. Other people don't care. They don't care. No, they really don't. <laughs> yeah, no, some, my computer wouldn't start. So I know what that's uh, all about. I had to turn it off and turn it on again. No, no, no. <laughs> and then you're terrified, aren't you? I always am yeah. in those situations. Oh, my God. I, 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 just, I don't know what I would do. I would just like... That would be enough to like send me spiraling, and I'd end up, you know, they'd find me in 20 years living <laughs> like a feral night. Yes, I know exactly the feeling. Yeah, I've suffered that. So <laughs> you've got microphones, and uh... yeah, I'm just turning on my proper microphone right now i'm recording so we can sort of segue into it very easily i don't really do an introduction i just sort of uh, swan in as it were no and i'd like to my early panic i think if you feel like that would be a good way to start feel free it gives a good sense i think of the person (laughs) so you're in new york aren't you i'm upstate new york i'm in a little Uh, village about two hours north of the city oh lovely yeah we moved here in like 20 about 2018 and and um, then the pandemic hit and my sleepy village turned into like Brooklyn. It's just now full of <laughs> <laughs> hipsters and you know and entitled children. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. I might have to go further, further north. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have those rich people following us. <laughs> I heard they were going to open a Soho house near here, and I just my heart just fell. It's like this is you know I moved to a flawed farming community to avoid all of that shit and, yeah and yet it's found me well it should be with me in miserable rainy we had snow yesterday but uh mm-hmm. not what you'd call snow from the new york perspective right whenever i've talked to anybody living abroad i think what am i doing here <laughs> yeah well i gotta say the weather the climate was part of the reason why we moved to new york i i, I just mm. got sick of um you know summers raising my son in in london and and just never being like you know you can go to a festival without you having to like run for cover and <laughs> and you know you could never be guaranteed i know like climate. i know since we left the country like we left in 2012 and i know that, that the climate has changed and you do now have long hot summers in in britain well, yeah, we've had a couple. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't guarantee it though. Mm. 
Well, that was the thing. It just it just got so depressing. Like you know, you, yeah. you can you can organize a picnic. You didn't have white Christmases and uh, no, yeah. So the climate was a big reason why we left. Actually, I just wanted I wanted long hot summers and snowy winters. So you naturalized now? Yeah, I got naturalized. I I, I was the last. I was naturalized on March thirteenth, twenty twenty, which was the day of lockdown. Mm. So that morning, I woke up. And I was like so prickly, like like you knew you. We were a week ahead of you, like you locked down a week later, but I, mm. you know, we knew like this was happening. And yeah, I yeah. had my naturalisation ceremony that morning, and and I just didn't know what to do. But then I, I felt propelled there, so I went there, and there was like two hundred people there, all of whom looked like they just did not want to be there. Like we were all, you know, <laughs> no. one person coughed, and like everybody, like you know, moved away. Um, and then you've got to declaim as a group. Yes. That's a very bad idea on the morning of lockdown. Well, a man got up on stage and said, usually this will take a couple of hours. We're going to have you in and out in 15 minutes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we all like swore allegiance to the flag very quickly. And then he went like, now go, go. <laughs> yes. No, don't talk. Yeah, just don't like, shake hands. And, and, <laughs> and I'm so glad that I did turn up because I really wasn't sure that I would because there wasn't another naturalisation ceremony for like 18 months. We, we, were, yeah. we were the last one. How lovely. Yeah, I mean, I always find those, when you see them on the television, or usually in films when you see that moment happen, it's very moving, mm. I think. And it slightly goes against the idea that, you know, a lot of people in, in America seem to be voting for, which is, you know, don't let anybody in. Mm. Well, you know, one of the worst things Trump did in this regard was he changed, he got them to make the questions more difficult because, you know, you have to do like 100 questions and they ask you 10 and you have to get mm. seven of them right. And Trump, <laughs> and Trump introduced some new questions that had no right or wrong answer. Like they were vague and oh. ambiguous and, and I, I want to yet another bastard thing that he did. Yeah, that's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. I wonder if we introduced it here, though, actually, if, if you know, that people would feel more open to the idea of people coming to this country, which I don't think they've ever not been open to it, but we do talk about it at the moment as if mm. as if it's something terrible. Yeah. As if we're being invaded, you know. Oh, that nonsense. Yeah. It is nonsense. Nonsense. I mean, we're to actually to say to people, you can come here, but if you come here that way, mm. you have no recourse to the law at all. And you think so, and then to argue that might be legal, you say, "Well, how can that be legal?" Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, is it legal? It's still being tested, right? I'm almost certain it will be found to be illegal, mm. and then they will say, "We don't care. We think it's legal." Ah, mm. ah. Good word. <laughs> it's dreadful. I, I, I've been watching, you know, from America. Yeah, I, I, I sort of go where the crazy is. So during the Trump presidency, I, I completely lost touch of what was happening in, in British politics. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as Liz Truss became <laughs> prime minister, I just switched allegiance and just, you know. <laughs> That's much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually since then, I got re-hooked onto the Radio 4 News. And and now I know I know nothing that's happening in America. And I just listen to the BBC News all the time. No. Waiting for the possibility mm. that he might come back. How weird. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> I know. That's awful. I was saying to my wife last night, actually, that if Trump gets re-elected... We can't spend those four years feeling just hatred and fear. It's mm. so destructive. Mm -hmm. I regret the amount of time I, I spent 
being obsessed and, you know, scared of Trump. It was four wasted years. Yeah. You know, every night I'd watch CNN and Anderson Cooper would, you know, get us even more riled and worried. And, yeah. and I sort of feel it just sapped, it sapped too much of my energy. I said to Elaine, if Trump gets reelected, maybe this time we could laugh at the absurdity of it <laughs> rather than be terrified at the horror. Yes, and it's only a small percentage of people who actually really take what he's saying seriously, yeah. isn't it? And actually, he didn't really achieve that much, considering all the things he said he was going to do. Absolutely. And when push came to shove and he tried to, you know, actively tried to destroy democracy, mm-hmm. democracy held firm. I mean, it was shaky, yeah. but it held. Yeah. It did hold. So that was encouraging. Yes, it is encouraging. Yeah. I can't see it happening, but I couldn't see it happening in the first place. So what do I know about it? You know? mm. it's, there's a world where it would happen, I think. If he gets the nomination and Biden stands for a second term mm. and, you know, he's in his 80s, you know, if something happened with his health. Yeah. I think that's the world where Trump could be president again. Yes. But saying that, we're all, like, fixated on Trump, but, you know, coming out of the darkness is somebody just as bad uh, and possibly worse because uh, he's cleverer than Trump, and that's Ron DeSantis. DeSantis, yeah. Yeah. I know. Be careful what you wish for is what they say, isn't it? And it's true. You sort of go, well, I, I hope anybody rather than him. Anyone but Trump. And you mm. go, no, not anybody. Yeah. No, absolutely not. It's it's such a strong movement. It's a very strange thing when you talk about you standing there, you know, and deciding I want to be an American or be a naturalised American. Mm. And everybody goes, well, what a fantastic thing to do. How exciting for you. And the Americans must all think, God, what an honour that people have chosen us. Mm-hmm. You would think they would think that, wouldn't you? But in fact, there right. is a certain amount of them who say... Why would we let you in? Mm. And it was also an awful lot of people who would say to me, why the hell would you want to become an American citizen when Trump's president? Because mm-hmm. Trump, it was still the Trump presidency. Yeah. My, my, and my answer to that was uh, because the country that elected Trump is also the country that will get rid of him. Mm-hmm. So, And in a way, they probably needed your help. Yeah, yeah. Well, I became a registered Democrat the day I became a citizen. <laughs> and I put a Biden lawn sign up. But in the village where I where I live, upstate, it's very mixed. It's like, so it's very like 50% Trump, 50% Biden. Mm-hmm. And so when I put my Biden lawn sign up, a neighbour put up a Trump sign. And it became like a little lawn sign war of attrition. And so I've decided uh, not to put up any more lawn signs. No. It's strange though, isn't it? Because I've met... I went on holiday to France and I met some really delightful American people. I had a lovely time with them. And then on the last day, somebody mentioned politics. And off they went. That Michelle Obama, she is the devil. <laughs> the she is Jews. the most. Yeah. And it <laughs> yeah. all came out. It was really weird. Right. And uh, just one woman there said, don't listen to this, that they're all mad. Right. Yes. And, and similarly here, like, when you take politics out of it, you know, I really do have a lot of Democrats one side of me and a lot of Trumpy people the other side of me. And there's no discord. I mean, everyone's nice to each other. Everyone's friendly. The Trumpy people mm-hmm. are very nice. The other day there was one of their dogs went rogue. So we all had to like get together and like run up the road to try and catch the dog. And <laughs> uh, there was unity and everyone was being nice to each other. So, so yeah, when, when you leave politics out of it, everyone's nice and friendly and neighbourly. Yes, that's the lesson we should learn, I think, Mm. is don't judge people just on the sticker on their lapel. Yeah, speaking of rogue dogs, by the way, so 
I've got to yeah. tell you what happened yesterday. Uh, so during the pandemic, I got a bird feeder. Sometimes it's fine, like a couple of cardinals and a few blue jays come and it's delightful. Mm. But then like, you know, flocks of predatory birds from time to time notice my bird feeder. Uh. And and at the moment, so yesterday morning I woke up, I, I put the bird seed out and I'd noticed it was like half past five in the morning. So it was, you know, the sun was just beginning to come up. And a neighbour had allowed her two terrifying dogs to run wild. So as I walked outside, I saw these two like terrifying dogs just staring at me. And then I looked into the <laughs> sky and there was like 400 starlings. Like the sky was black with starlings waiting oh, wow. for me to put the birds down. And it was like Hades. It's like, Jesus Christ. It's like the birds. Yeah, it was like, it's like hell. You know, these like killer dogs, like the sky black with birds. It's like, oh my God, I've died and gone to Hades. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not doing any bird seed for a few days in the hope that the starlings will move on. But John, surely you've learned that if those dogs are staring at you, you know you can stare back at them and kill them. <laughs> That's very true. Well, it was the dogs I was less frightened of because I've got a fence so the dogs couldn't have got yeah, in. Wisely. Yeah, but the starlings, my God. It, honestly, it mm. was creepy as anything. They were all in the trees and, and you could see them like it was. It was very tippy hedron. Like, I can see them now. They're like perched in the trees, just just waiting. Do they do that thing they do? I saw them in Brighton the other week mm. by the pier. They all roost in the pier. So before they do that, they all do that extraordinary thing where they fly around en masse mm. and make these amazing shapes. I can't remember. Is it called a twittering? or? A... I'm not sure, but yes. Something like that. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. that was, so that was happening at dawn yesterday right outside my, ah. my house and... Yeah, a lot of creepy twittering. <laughs> they make shapes you think they're trying to send us messages. They know something we don't. <laughs> Do you think they're spelling things out in the air? <laughs> Where's half? Well, talking of your work, which I did talk of your work briefly there. Yes. The brilliant many stare at goats and the, mm -hmm. just amazing stuff. Uh, but you've got a new thing, haven't you, which is the debutante. Yeah, it's coming out in April, April the 13th. Right. It's the, I'll tell you the first line of it because, uh, you know, when I make shows i've noticed this a few times because you make the show then you have to figure out how to talk about the show and <laughs> which is a whole new skill right because like you know because yeah. you can't just tell everyone the entire six hour story so you have to like find a <laughs> way of talking about it without also revealing everything as well yes so a friend of mine the other day was asking me what the show was about so i said to her it's, i said it's the story of a tulsa debutante who as a result of a series of unlikely and often very bad life choices she made in the 90s, found herself in the midst of one of the most terrible crimes ever to happen in America. So then I thought, well, that is the perfect way of <laughs> telling Ooh. someone the story. So, so I made it the first line of the show. So that's now the first line of the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which means you've got to listen, haven't you? Because you sort of go... Which crime? What are you talking about? Yeah. Who? What life choices did she make that were so bad? Yeah. That's indicating impending humour, of which there is quite a lot. Uh, mm. Yeah, she's a Tulsa debutante rebelling against her parents. Uh, I'll just tell you the first five minutes of the six-hour show. So okay. uh, she rebels against her parents. She doesn't want to marry like a squire from the debutante ball. So instead mm. she, we think, this is one 
thing I'm not entirely certain about, but we think that what she did next was um, join. Now, I don't know if you, do you remember, do you remember an old band called Psychic TV from the 80s? Genesis PR. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. They had a, um, (laughs) they had like a weird fan club called the Temple of Psychic Youth, where they'd have these like weird sex rituals and stuff. Right. Anyway, we, we think, but we're not sure that she joined the Temple of Psychic Youth. And then that wasn't hardcore enough. So she came back to Tulsa met a stoner drifter called Greg, um, <laughs> married him within three weeks, uh, convinced him to get matching swastika tattoos. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, uh, I interviewed Greg. I'm the only person ever to interview him. And he's had his swastika tattoo sort of covered over now. And he's, like, disguised it with little swirls and flowers, mm-hmm. which basically makes it look like an effeminate swastika. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's so that's the first... 15 minutes of the show. God. Uh, and, and then her, she makes an awful lot more terrible life choices after that. Yeah, but also does some very heroic things too. It's, a very, it's an interesting story. Yeah, no, I look forward to hearing it. Well, is, that, is that on Audible? Yeah, Audible, April 13th. Right. Okay, brilliant. Yes. There we are. That's in the diary. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary how easy it is for people who live a life of luxury to give it up because they know they can go back. Yes. Mm. Yeah, she was, and and indeed did. There's times in the story when she got completely out of her depth in very dangerous places and did go back to her parents' fancy house in Tulsa to Mm. sort of, you know, recharge or recover or hide or or whatever. So you're right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she had a a safety net. It's it's the pulp experience, isn't it? Why I want to live with common people. Right. Yes. Uh, one of my favourite. What a great song that is. What a great song. What a great song. I remember being at Glastonbury when, I don't know if you remember, but Oasis was supposed to be headlining and something happened. I think the Gallagher's beat each other up or something and <laughs> yeah. they had to cancel. And at the very last minute, Pulp took their place. And, <gasps> and the thing that made me laugh was for the 45 minutes before they were on, they just played this tape on a loop. They just said, Come and see pulp. Come and see. <laughs> and it just like echoed around Glastonbury for like 45 minutes. Brilliant. <laughs> Come and see pulp. <laughs> As if they need to. What a great yeah. band. Oh, there we are. And I, I should tell you that I've been listening to, to your show and, and it's wonderful. Oh, bless you. Yeah, when I was walking my dog Josie yesterday, I listened to the all of the best of 2022. And what a wonderful, what a lovely thing that you're doing. Well, it's a lovely thing to do, I have to say, John. It's really nice because it's extraordinary, isn't it? We've never met, and yet it brings you instantly into this very relaxed conversation. I... Well, that's a lot to do with you being a very calming <laughs> figure on my Zoom. Oh, well, that's all right, then. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but, yeah, Adara was very funny, and, and, you know, some of the stories were very moving, and I just yeah. thought, what a, what a great thing that you're doing. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> in fact, you know what? Speaking of David, just before the pandemic, I met, he was in New York and we went out for dinner. And it just, again, showed like that we were a week ahead of you because like we were all like, you know, we've got to wash our hands all the time and don't touch any surfaces. Mm. And Dar was like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Like nothing's going <laughs> <laughs> to happen. This is, I was just, this is going to just breeze past. And in fact, going out with Dara that night was the last social thing I did for like, Two years. Wow. Oh, yeah. 
What a weird time that was. <laughs> yes. But I, I mean, I just hope it doesn't come back. Did you ever get it? I've had it. Right. And I've just also done that thing that, that I thought there was a time when you thought you'd never do it, which is I basically went to a conference for something that I, I was in and they mm-hmm. paid me money, obviously, to stand there and say hello to lots of people. But I had a really lovely time meeting hundreds of people, one after the other, and then taking a photograph with them. Now, if I don't get COVID from that, mm. then I'm, I, I find that incredibly encouraging. Mm. And when was that? Just this last weekend, so... Okay, so... We're four days in. I think you're right. Yeah, so I. I thought the gestation... I thought it was like two days. God, that reminded me. I did a talk one time uh, in Shropshire, Mm. and I signed everybody's book at the end. It was the first day of a tour. I signed everybody's um, book, shook everyone's hand, and then put my hand in my mouth... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and ended up with, like, the most horrific cold for the entire tour. <laughs> so now now I say on stage that I don't like to be touched. And in the signings, <laughs> no one touches me. I say it as a joke. And I, I, it's like a funny... But, but I also mean it. And, yeah. and now I don't shake anyone's hand and I don't get a cold. Yeah. Uh, I got kissed. Uh-huh. I actually... Oh, we love your character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yeah, that's yes. not good. Well, it sounds like you, you're going to be all right. Which is encouraging, isn't it? Which means that actually mm. maybe I wouldn't have worried about something like that before COVID. Mm. And and it would be really nice to get back to the point where I don't worry about it again. Mm, I agree. We'll see. We'll see. We will see. We will see. But I'm aware of the fact that you're giving me your time and it's very generous of you. <laughs> and I'm going to move you into talking about things that you would put into a time capsule. Yes. So you've got a list, have you? Yeah, I did a little list yesterday. Mm. I hope I've got enough. Yeah, I've got enough. Yeah. Yes. Well, do you want me to start? Yeah, just start. You pick whatever you want to pick for the first one. Okay, well, the first one is, it's a letter that I got from Paul McKenna, the hypnotist, promising that he was going to donate money to a donkey sanctuary. (laughs) So I wish I could actually give you the letter, but it's in storage, and so I don't have it. But it's basically, you know, dear John, I promise you that I'm going to donate money to a to a donkey sanctuary. And will I tell you the, the, the backstory to this letter? Yes, please. <laughs> so so I interviewed Paul McKenna. I have a terrible, you know, various anxiety disorders. So actually, instead of interviewing him, I got him to cure me of my anxieties. Oh. Uh, he, he did like NLP on me and uh, cured me. Like, like for years, if I was travelling to America and I couldn't get my wife on the phone, I just immediately assumed that, you know, she was dead mm-hmm. and my son was dead and, you know, she'd fallen down the stairs and my son was reaching up to a just boiled kettle. That was the <laughs> mental picture. So anyway, I got Paul McKenna to cure me of that. Yes. Um, but while I was talking to him, you know, we were talking about anxieties and and I said to him, you know, it's like my Sid, so, you know, anxiety is such a kind of weird, irrational thing. Like my son, he he he's terrified that a bear will come into his bedroom, but he doesn't look left and right when he crosses the road. Uh. And Paul McKenna said, yeah, yeah, exactly. More people are killed by donkeys than by aeroplanes, but nobody has donkey phobias. And I said, exactly. And then a couple of days later, I was, I was you know, back at home having dinner with my wife. And I said, uh, isn't it funny that, you know, more people are killed by donkeys than by aeroplanes, but no one has donkey phobias. And Elaine went, that's bollocks. <laughs> she said, who told you that? And I went, Paul McKenna. <laughs> and, 
And she went, well, it's total bollocks. <laughs> and, I, and I said, um, I said, Paul McKenna would have no reason to lie. <laughs> I snarled defiantly at her. And, uh, so she said, well, look it up. Google it if you're so sure of yourself. So I did, mm-hmm. and I went, I went on to the American Donkey and Mule Society's Frequently Asked Questions. <laughs> <laughs> Easily found, yeah. <laughs> and said, is it true? Well, I typed, are more people killed by donkeys than by airplanes? And it took me, Google took me to the Frequently Asked Questions section of the American Donkey and Mule Society, where it said... Um, this question has been plaguing us for decades. No, <laughs> we only have one recorded example of a man ever being killed by a donkey. Uh, so, yeah, so I told Paul McKenna that and <laughs> in guilt, he said he was going to donate. He said he felt very bad about maligning donkeys. Wow. And he was going to donate to a donkey sanctuary. So that's one of those apocryphal myths, is it? That yeah. Obviously he'd gone around and he'd heard it and thought, no, that must be true. When you think about it, like how would hundreds of people be killed by donkeys? Like how would that happen? I mean, I suppose they could stampede, but... <laughs> so I don't, yeah, I don't even know how the one guy was killed. I don't know, missing their footing on a rocky path? Yeah, maybe just... Not likely, is it? No. No. Oh, no. My son-in-law adores donkeys. He turns into a little whimpering child almost when he sees them. He so loves them. And they are the most gorgeous creatures, aren't they? Yeah. Well, you can tell him from me that he has nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about, no. <laughs> yeah, they won't kill him. No, unless he takes a donkey on a plane. Yes, yeah, <laughs> then, exactly, then you're screwed. <laughs> then you're buggered. <laughs> a couple of years after my donkey conversation with Paul McKenna, I was in Los Angeles and I, I went into this hotel. Uh, there was Robbie Williams sitting with Paul McKenna and Gillian Anderson. <laughs> and... Uh, and I know Rob because I did this adventure with him where we went looking for UFOs. Yeah. We went UFO hunting together. Which he's obsessed with, isn't he? Yes. And mm. me and him went alien hunting in the deserts of Nevada. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> kept missing, kept missing aliens. Like people would say to us, if you'd only been here like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> there were loads two, of them. <laughs> yeah. They were having a the fight by the side of the road and he just missed it. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, so I said, you know, can I join you? And um, so I sat down and I said to Paul McKenna, when you cured me of, you know, when you did that NLP on me and, you know, I, I no longer have those fears of that my wife is dead if I can't get her on the phone. Wow. And thank you. And he gave me a massive hug. He was so pleased that it, that it had worked. So then we, we sat around the table, we were talking and we were talking about aliens. Mm. And Gillian Anderson's new husband uh, was there. I think they'd just got married. And he said to her, uh, he said, oh, uh, were there ever any aliens in the X-Files? <laughs> and, and she looked so thrilled. And she said, oh, darling, it was all aliens. <laughs> Oh, how sweet. It was all aliens. She, she, uh, she was just delighted yeah. that her husband knew nothing about the X-Files. Yeah, that's good. That means that yeah. he didn't fall in love with the image. Yes, yeah. exactly. Nice. 
I said, well, how brilliant that it's actually cured you, though. Yeah, it did. It cured me. I don't have that particular worry. I, don't, I mean, I still have a lot of other anxieties. I should have asked him to have cured me of all of them, <laughs> just, sort of that, just that one. But yeah, it worked. He did a thing on me called the swish technique. I should say, by the way, for people who, you know, listening to this and think, well, does this mean that NLP, you know, neuro-linguistic programming, that kind of works? Mm. And I'd say that by and large, it's, it's kind of a pseudoscience. But if you're going to get anyone to do this stuff on you, it should be Paul McKenna, because he really can hypnotise you and Mm -hmm. he did hypnotise me and so it did work for me. Yeah. But I don't think it's, I don't think NLP is like a cure. Or... He could have made Robbie Williams very happy by hypnotising him to see an alien and make his, <laughs> make his day. Wouldn't that be delightful? You know, one time <laughs> I, the last time I think I saw Rob was, again, I was in Los Angeles and I was at a hotel and I was working in the lobby mm. and I heard, John! And I, and I heard it a few times and I, and I didn't like, register. And then like the third time I looked up and there was Rob with his kids. Yeah. And he said, come and have breakfast with us. So I had breakfast with them and, uh, and he kept ordering like dish after dish, like waffles and bacon. And it was like a big like <laughs> slap up breakfast for like him and his kids and me and, you know, and it was an expensive hotel. Mm. And at the end of the breakfast... He just like got up and left. And <laughs> so I paid the bill. It was like <laughs> it was like three hundred dollars or something and I and I paid it. Oh. And then about three months later, I got an email from him saying, John, it's Rob. I'm in Dresden. Did I contribute to that? Did I <laughs> contribute any money to that breakfast? Oh, brilliant. Uh, and I was like, no, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's like, oh, I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. And How lovely of him. Yeah. Because it's very easy, I think, for people in that position to get so used to the fact that you've got a record company executive. They'll say, I'll get it. I'll sort all this out. There's always someone there who handles all that. So you must be very sort of almost second nature to just stand up and walk out. Absolutely. I think that must be what happened. Yeah. And then just for some reason, three months later, it popped into his head as a as a concern. Hang on a minute. <laughs> this, this wasn't a business meeting. This was a social event. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That's really nice to hear. I've heard some lovely things about Robbie Williams from a number of people. I've never met him, but I've always... You sort of suspect that if enough people say those nice things about someone, that it's got to be true. He is the loveliest person. He it really is. I, every time I meet him, it's it's always kind of warming, and we always and we have adventures. He has, you know, his crazy life where he hired a private plane for the day to like, <laughs> you know, look for aliens in the in the desert. <laughs> but my favourite memory of that day was um, we turned up at the plane that he'd hired for the day. And there was a woman standing there and she said, you know, Mr. Williams, Mr. Williams's friends, you know, welcome to your plane. This is your plane for the day. Uh, she said, what I want to tell you is, <laughs> what I want to tell you is Snoop Dogg uses this plane a lot. <laughs> what I'm saying is you can do anything. <laughs> and, and we all like looked at each other and, <laughs> and Rob's friend, Brandon, said, um, well, can we stand up as the plane lands? Oh, oh, we did. We all stood up (laughs) as the plane landed. (laughs) The seatbelt sign is on, but I'm going to go to the loo. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, we were like plane surfing. (laughs) Like as the plane came into land, we stood up. Oh, I have just, I just have (laughs) a filmic view 
at the end of that day of you flying around looking for aliens everywhere in this aeroplane, <laughs> and then just at the end of it, having been disappointed, that hostess, she waves goodbye to you from the steps of the plane. Rips off her face. The jazz, exactly. And a great <laughs> green tongue comes out and she laughs hysterically <laughs> at the fools, you fools. <laughs> and not only that, by shaking her hand, she's become impregnated and, and will now rule the world. <laughs> With Robbie Williams' spawn. Uh, he was very delightful that day. Nobody recognised him, because partly because it was in America and it's, you know, the one place in the world where he's not particularly famous. Mm-hmm. But also he'd put on quite a lot of weight and he had a big beard. This was his kind of lost period. Yeah. Uh, walking around in like a moo-moo or a kaftan <laughs> or whatever, like Demis Roussos. And um, <laughs> anyway, one person recognised him and she had a 16-year-old kid who she believed was a super-evolved indigo child like a super evolved being right and he had been abducted by aliens and brought back to earth you know with special superpowers Mm. and i remember rob saying you know that that's how he felt when he joined take that that he had been (laughs) taken by aliens and (laughs) you know so he empathized and i always thought that was very sweet yeah and then she said that her son was bullied at school (laughs) so rob said well when when did the bullying begin and she said, well, shortly after I published my, my book about him called uh, Raising an Intergalactic Star Child in a Changing World. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Uh, it's not a good idea to write about your family. Mm. Mm. So although he's obviously vehemently in, in favour of the idea of searching for aliens, he still has a sense of humour about it. The thing, I, Yeah, one thing I really like about him is that he really does have a foot in both camps. Mm. Uh, like, he, you know, he, he's half sceptic, half believer. Yeah. And, yeah, that's very kind of likeable. Yeah, it is. Because a lot of them are full believer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the very fact that Paul McKenna managed to cure you of your nerves about leaving people alone and and suddenly going into panic, (laughs) uh, which is an amazing thing. So we should definitely put his letter into the time capsule as the first thing, John. Well, thank you. He'll be glad to. Good. Okay. do you want my second one? Yes, what's the second thing? Okay. sorry to interrupt. Hope you're enjoying yourself so far. We have to have some adverts now, but we'll be back very soon. Cheers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Don't forget, if you find the ad breaks annoying, then you can, for a very small fee, get this podcast without adverts by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details alongside this episode. Thanks very much. Right, here is the rest of the things John Bronson would like to put in his time capsule. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, there's a photograph of my son, me and my son, 
on vacation. He's got a bandaged hand. Mm -hmm. He's about, I guess, five. This is maybe 2003. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the reason why I want this photograph put in a time capsule. So it was when I was writing The Men Hysteric Goats, although I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. But I was travelling back and forth to America, like, all the time. And we weren't really getting anything. My previ- I'd written this book, Them, just previously, where every time I did something, it was great. Like I snuck into Bohemian Grove, this kind of secret club with, with Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist. And yeah, yeah. We had like an amazing adventure and I got chased by this secret society called the Bilderberg Group. And I hung out with David Icke and, and you know, and everything that, that I did was like hit the jackpot mm. storytelling wise. And then everyone was so excited, you know, they said, well, you know, do more. Because this was both a documentary for Channel 4 and, and a book. It so, did more extraordinary things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, and so we, we started going back and forward to America and just getting nothing. It was the opposite experience. Like we were getting nothing. Mm. And I was getting more and more panicky and anxious and depressed and... And also I started to get like motion sickness and the plane would come into land and I would just, you know, in the old days, like if I if I ended up in some town in America where you would never normally go if you weren't a journalist on a story, I would feel just so excited. But hmm. this time around, I was just depressed. I felt lonely and homesick the whole time. Anyway, I was at LAX and I was about to get on a plane to Hawaii. I mean, other than Australia, that's pretty much as far as you can be away from home. Mm. And we just had this little lead in Hawaii that there was this guy there who was willing to talk to us, who was part of a secret military unit called Project Jedi. And we didn't know anything about Project Jedi or what it was, but like we were just flailing around spending Channel 4's money. And hmm. here we were about to fly to Hawaii. And just as I got on the plane, I phoned home and my wife said that Joel, our son, they'd just come out of some store and he fell over and got glass embedded in his hand. And while I was on the plane between LA and Hawaii, he was having an emergency operation to get this this glass taken out of his hand. And and because we were on our way to Honolulu, it was like a party plane. (laughs) People were wearing like garlands and those things that you put around your neck and yeah. saying aloha to each other and 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 I was like underneath the duvet just like you know basically like sobbing it was like the worst moment of my life my son was having this operation this was pre-go-go so there was no way I could like find out what was happening no uh, and you're thinking well, why am I not flying the other way yeah like what the fuck am I doing mm. like this is not the life I want and in fact my cameraman Dave I hope he won't mind me saying that, you know, he, he he's like a, maybe 20 years older than me. And, and he would talk of his regrets of like missing his children growing up because he was constantly filming documentaries all over mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. And I thought this is what my life is becoming too. And I have to stop, like I have to stop. So we got to Hawaii and obviously the first thing I did was phone and, and it was fine, like he was fine and mm. everything was okay. And then we went round to this guy's house, Glenn Wheaton. And I said, so tell me about Project Jedi. And he said, uh, he said, well, it was a series of levels. This was like a secret thing we were doing at Fort Bragg. He said, it's a series of levels. And I said, what well, was level one? 
He said, level one was observation. How many chairs are in this room? The super soldier would just know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, uh, what, what was level two? To so the very phrase super soldier, that's really <laughs> disturbing, isn't it? Right, yes. Uh, they would say that like the US military is supposed to do these things. We're supposed to think out of the box. The high visibility jacket was invented by the US military. Right. I guess you could, the internet was, ARPANET. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what they would say. Like, if we don't try this shit out, no one will. Yeah. So what's level two? Level two is intuition. Right. You at a fork in the road. Do you go left? Do you go right? You go right. The super soldier knows so the right said, way. Yeah, the super soldier would just know. Oh. So I said, what was level three? <laughs> <laughs> and how many levels are there? Four. Four, right. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, he said level three was invisibility. <laughs> and I said, that's kind of a, that's a leap from level two. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I said, what, uh, actual invisibility? And he said, at first, but after a while, we adapted it to trying to find a way of not being seen. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, like, like camouflage. And he went, no. (laughs) No, no, no. no. I think he meant like like if you're standing against a wall, you know, you stand with the brickwork, not against it. That kind of thing. Yeah. And then he said level four was we had a master sergeant that could stop the heart of a goat just by <laughs> just by wanting it to stop. And I said, did, did he ever manage it? And he said, yeah, one time, but his heart got damaged in, in the process. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what was the goat psychically fighting back? And he said, the goat didn't stand a chance. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, when I got back to Britain, I was like watching the footage of this interview. My wife came home kind of drunk. And I said, you've got to watch this. And she watched it and was like laughing and said, you should call the book The Men Who Stare at Goats. Brilliant. Yeah, that's how how it happened. So the reason why I want to put that photograph in there is because it's like it was the best of times and the worst of times all in one photograph. And, of course, you could have made the decision to get that phone call. You might have said to everybody... I'm not getting on the plane. Do you know what? I've got to go now. Bye. Mm. And then that whole extraordinary... What what a world, though. Mm. I mean, I can see the argument that if we don't go down these roads of trying ridiculous things, Mm. then actually we'll never achieve anything because Mm. you can say, no, that won't work. Absolutely. Yeah, I respected that that attitude. And and they would point out real world things that the US, mm-hmm. you know, that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the military. Mm. In a way, some people go down that route because they, they're, they're thinking of it for a book, for fiction. Mm. Every time I use a mobile phone, I think of Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. And I think of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the fact yes. that I can, with my phone, basically do what you could do with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That mm. and a combination of that and Star Trek, in as much as I can see the picture of people, if I want to, all over the world. Yeah. It's amazing. So those things that, that we all marvelled at as ideas, what a world that would be. Mm. And now it is that world. Yes, I agree. I, I often think of Douglas Adams when I use my phone for exactly mm. the same reason. Yeah. yeah. Think he knew that it would happen? I I don't know. I mean, I wonder. Mm. He always talked about things as if he sort of had a clue about the future. Mm. Do you know what I mean? In that he'd read a lot about what people were trying to do. So he probably would have known about those sort of military ideas. So he may even have thought, no, at some point we will be able to communicate with each other without actually talking. We'll just be able to think. Yeah. There's a few of those things like Bowie. Have you ever seen that interview Bowie did with Jeremy Paxman? And he's saying, you know, the internet 
is going to change the world in ways that you can't even fathom. And Paxman was saying, you know, don't be ridiculous. It's just like a letter, <laughs> it's just like posting it. And, you know, he, he's yeah. been very Luddite about it all. And I, and I don't want to like over, I don't want to like misremember and make it better than it was. But, but the way I remember it is that Bowie then just lays out all the things that the internet is going to do and was right about everything. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I have those conversations with people about driverless cars, mm-hmm. which seems, you know, sort of, oh, that's an interesting idea. Wouldn't that be fun? Right. But when I talk to people about the, the repercussions of that, if it works and they get it working, what that does to the world and what the hell do all those people who drive for a living do? Mm. All those people, they're not necessary anymore. Mm. And that's happening with like every new invention. I mean, just look at ChatGBT. Mm. Have you been on ChatGBT yet? I have, yeah. yeah. Right. It either works extremely well or, you know, I mean, it's good for mm. some things and then other times... It's sort of mind-blowingly dreadful. Yes. If you ask it to write inventive stuff, you ask it to write a comedy sketch, right. things like that. It's really interesting. In a bad way, like it can't replicate that side of humanity. It really can't do it. It does no idea. It can be mm. funny in the fact that it's it's sort of absurd. You go, well, what took you from that to that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Also, it very confidently gives you wrong answers sometimes. Oh, yeah. It doesn't mm-hmm. say, I'm not sure about this, but I believe. It tells you very confidently uh, something. Yeah. So I, I, I gave it a try. I, I put in my high school, Cardiff High School, and I said, you know, tell me some notable alumni from Cardiff High School. And it came up with every famous person who ever lived in Wales. <laughs> all, went, like, all went to Cardiff High School. Yeah. <laughs> why do you think, I wonder why they didn't programme uncertainty into it? I don't know. Or, in fact, yeah. the thing of saying, I don't know. Yeah. I can't find that out, sorry. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, you, you would guess that they'll probably perfect it and it will get better yeah. or worse. Because it's automatically going to Wikipedia and, and there are great chunks of that that are wrong, including, I think, still, my age. Right. Which is uh, it's always always pleasant. Apparently <laughs> I'm well into my 70s already. So, you know. have, you, have you tried to go in and change it? I have, yeah. They wanted me to send my original birth certificate to America. Right. I mm. <laughs> another thing that bugs me about my Wikipedia page is, it, it, you know, at the top work kind of starts with like the most notable things about you. Yes. And one of them is is the fact that I wrote for City Life magazine in Manchester. Like John Oxen <laughs> is known for writing for City Life. And I'm like, <laughs> I wrote for City Life for like a couple of months in the late 80s. Like, give yeah. me a break. Like, I, and I, and, and I <laughs> went in and took out like the only time I've ever edited my own Wikipedia page was like I'm going to take out City Life it's like come on like this was not and someone put it back in again they put it straight back in it's really pointless absolutely (laughs) editing your own stuff is really pointless Uh, somebody somewhere will go goodness sake who changed that idiot and we'll put it back in for a long time (laughs) my my Wikipedia page said that I was well known for a long run in the bill where I went under the name of and I can't remember the actor they used and it is another actor who was in the bill for a long time and they just claimed it was me pretending to be them I think but I don't know what it meant it was rubbish <laughs> that's so annoying I've got to ask you about <laughs> acting like I, I could never I'm way too self-conscious to act I can't act I have zero acting skill like how do you have to just be a very like unself-conscious person to to be able to act I don't know it varies what you know the nature of actors I know some people who are fantastically shy and in public and in a public arena, mm. you would think they would never be good actors. Mm. Rowan Atkinson, 
Right. He's a very shy, private man with a stutter that he occasionally gets if he gets over-nervous. And yet there he is performing in front of tens of millions and no qualms about it at all. I'm so aware of myself. Like, like, like on the very rare occasion I've been asked to, like, act mm. with a camera on me. If it's audio, like I did a voice for Harry Hill once and I did it with a plum because it was just audio. Yeah. But if there's a camera on me, I'm so aware of my body. I just can't imagine, you know, being another person. I don't know. I've never really analysed it. I mean, I just, mm. I enjoy doing it. Right. You know, so I think maybe that's it. It's funny. It's funny. It's funny how our brains work, you know, like I'm really good at non-fiction and I'm terrible at fiction. Mm. You know, it's weird that we we have some skills and then we just have zero aptitude in, in other, you would think, very similar skills. Yes. Yeah. But then mm -hmm. I've always admired I know a couple of friends who have that drive that you have mm -hmm. to find something interesting and then to go with it. You know, not not sort of, oh, that's interesting, and then move on to, uh, and what shall I watch on the telly? Mm. You go, that's interesting. Where does that take me if I keep going at it, keep pushing at it and picking away at that thread? Yes. And that is why you end up producing the sort of things you do, because you have that in your nature, I think. Yeah, I, I love it. If there's a moment where exactly what you just said, and if there's a moment when I just think, you know, that's something I don't understand. Like, this is mm. something I don't understand that I really want to understand. And and then you just feel like a kind of sailboat with the wind behind you. And and, <laughs> and I love it. And I, I, you know, and I love rabbit holes. I love looking at, you know, obscure psychology papers from the 60s, you know, the mm. most boring, you know, a lot of my best stories come from the most boring places, like a really dull memoir with just like a little moment in it that, yeah. that just like sparks. What led you to study psychopaths? Um, well, the actual, I don't actually put in the book the, the actual reason why I got interested in it. But it was a woman called Mary Turner Thompson. Uh, okay, so I used to make this show for Radio 4 called John Ronson On. Mm. And what we would do is we'd come up with a with like a theme and then we'd ask our researcher, Lucy Greenwell, to try and find people, you know, who somehow speak to that theme. So a theme we were doing was called Waking Up From A Dream. Mm. And, and I thought, well, one way we could do that is somebody who realised that they're the victim of a con. So we said to Lucy, can you try and find somebody who was a victim of a con? Um, it would be great to see like that moment when they realise they're being conned. Yeah. So Lucy found this woman in Edinburgh called Mary Turner Thompson, uh, who I've subsequently done loads of tours with because her story is so mind-blowing. So I'll tell it to you very, very quickly. So Mary was internet dating. She meets this guy called Will Jordan. They fall madly in love with each other. Within a couple of months, they're going to get married. But then she realises that she doesn't know much about him. So she goes on to Company's house and finds that there's an address registered to him, which he hadn't told her about, in this town near Edinburgh called Gullen. Mm. So she drives to Gullen like Miss Marple and pulls up outside this house. And it's a mansion with like all of these satellite dishes on the roof and children's toys and stuff like that scattered around the garden. So she confronts him. And he goes into the corridor and he's like pacing up and down for like 45 minutes on the phone. And he comes back and he says, okay, I'm allowed to tell you. I work in IT for the CIA. I'm a CIA IT worker. And what you, <laughs> what you saw was a, was a safe house and all the satellite dishes on the roof were like, you know, CIA equipment. <laughs> so she marries him. 
And, and for the next like seven years, she's living as like a CIA wife. Like, like he would go off for six months to Janine and she'd get these messages saying, uh, like these encrypted CIA messages saying he's fine, but he's in hospital in the West Bank. And he'd come back, you know, with his feet all mangled, you know, from the fact that he was in hospital. Anyway, after seven years, she gets his phone call saying, um, are you Mrs. Jordan? And Mary said, yes. And the woman said, I'm the other Mrs. Jordan. And the house in Gullen wasn't a CIA safe house. It was his other family. Yeah. The satellite dishes was just like Sky. Yeah. When he was like a Janine, he was just with his other family. It turned out he was a bigamist, a pedophile, a con man. Oh. So I said to her, and I think this is the moment, two moments happened after she told me this like mind-blowing story. I said, the first one was I said to her, you must have been very upset. <laughs> uh, sometimes the most stupid questions lead to the best answers. And she said, no. Because, you know, when a wildebeest is being chased by a lion, is the wildebeest, like, personally upset? Like, you know, no. They know it's the lion's nature. Will Jordan's a psychopath. He's he's not like a real human. He's more like a predator. He's more like a predatory animal. Uh, yeah. So that was my first thought. It's like, wow, are you telling me that there's people who live among us who are more like wild animals than humans? And then I was talking to a psychologist who said did you know that you're four times more likely to find a psychopath at the top of the tree than at the bottom? So I put these like two things together because usually that's a kind of kind of glib thing that a psychologist might say, like, Ooh. did you know that you're much more like, and people could go like, oh yeah, you know, psychopaths at the top, you know, that makes sense and then forget all about it. But I was like, no, that is an extraordinary thought. Like, are you telling me that there's a mental disorder that happens to be like the worst mental disorder in the world, psychopathy. Mm. And that's the one that's molded society. <laughs> like society is mold, you know, that psychopaths have created society. These people that are more like wild animals than humans. So yes. I put those two thoughts together and that's what led me to write the psychopath test. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And it takes us all the way back to American politics of the last few years and uh, British politics at the moment. Yes. Mm. Well, well, yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing I would say is that the, I, I personally don't... I mean, look, armchair diagnosis is, like, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... But, I mean, I think I'm being flippant when I say that. Well, yeah, but I, I sort of think if, if Trump has a personality disorder, it's probably more likely to be narcissism than psychopathy. Because mm -hmm. narcissists, there's like a wound. There's like a lot of emotion going on under the surface. There's like wounds that won't heal. Whereas with psychopaths, what's going on under the surface is nothing. Mm. It's, like a, it's like an abyss. Mm. I don't think that's true of Trump. I think Trump is... There's a lot of bubbling, you know. Yeah, no, I think that may be true of Johnson as well. Yeah, well... I want to be loved. Right. Mm. I mean, we, obviously we don't know, but no, no. but it's still fun to think about these things. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And actually it's an interesting way to look at the world once you realise that that is probably true, that actually people who get to the top quite often are people who don't give a damn what happens to people around them on the way up. If you take empathy out of the brain, all that's left is the desire to win, mm. to see the world in terms of predators and prey. 
Yeah. Yeah. And also, of course, society rewards psychopathic character traits. Like the shareholders love it when the CEO is a psychopath because yeah. they can just fire 30% of the workforce mm-hmm. without any conscience. Yes. Yeah. No, well, I know that was going to destroy that rainforest, but it made us a lot of money. Exactly. And wouldn't you yeah. rather have a CEO who, who enjoys hurting people rather than feels, <laughs> feels bad about it? Oh, John, don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. Isn't it? Yes, we ought to put that photograph of your son and you mm. into the time capsule. That's the second item. That's number two. That's number two. Okay. Look where it's led us. How brilliant. Yes. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on to item number three. Item number three is Paul Simon's 2012 concert in Hyde Park. Uh, Now, the reason why I say that is I I was there mm -hmm. and also it's online, like he released it as a concert film, so you can watch it. So it's great. This is the Graceland reunion concert. So Ladysmith came over and and so it it was kind of incredible. And it was our last summer in London before we moved to America. Mm. And it was the summer of the Olympics. And... And that summer of 2012 was just the best time to be in London. It was mm. just wonderful. And so we went to that concert. I mean, I come back to Britain like all the time, like several times a year. So it's not like I've left mm. or anything. Yeah. But that concert just felt like the most kind of perfect, like, farewell. He didn't sing America in that concert, but... You know, I always think of America when I think about moving to America, that song, because it's a song about, you know, both the excitement and also the pain of travel. And, Mm -hmm. you know, moving to America was, you know, for the first year, it was kind of painful. But also that summer, I don't know if you remember, but all the different countries had like their own houses in London. So the Brazil team would have its area and the New Zealand team. And me and Joel would get on our bikes every day and cycle to all the different houses. Uh. And it was so much fun. Like the Brazil house was like this great big party all the time with like everybody's like <laughs> dancing. And, and then I went to like, I think it was Qatar. I went to like one of the Middle Eastern countries' houses and... It was just like a closed door and we knocked and it, and it like opened a crack and the guy went, what? I said, well, I said oh, we've come to... We're so, preparing to compete. Go away. Yeah. Or more just like, you know, no one's visiting that house. No. So anyway, I just, it was just very sweet that it was the, uh, you know, each, each country was like reflected in, in the atmosphere of the houses that they had. Um, <laughs> Where were they? I didn't see those. Yeah, they, they were kind of all over London. I think New Zealand house was up at King's Cross, if I remember rightly. Mm-hmm. I think that's where New Zealand was. Right. Um, yeah, and <laughs> so they were just like scattered around London and it was just such a magical way to spend our last summer in London. Wasn't it? And all those things like the equestrian centre mm-hmm. at Greenwich mm-hmm. Park and things like that. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, God, it went, they did it so beautifully. Yeah. Did Art Garfunkel sing with Paul Simon? No, I think they've fallen out, Ah. unfortunately. Mm. Um, I think Art is quite resentful of Paul Simon. I used in interviews with Art Garfunkel, if anybody brings up Paul Simon, he gets a little... Right. Yeah, he's not a nice man, we'll say things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but I'll tell you what, speaking of Paul Simon, Mm. uh, circuitously, so when we lived in the city, we lived quite close to Central Park, and one night, I, I think my wife was away and I was like at home alone with the dogs. And I was feeling a bit cabin fevery. And so I decided to go for a walk. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And I walked to Central Park. And I never go out at 10 o'clock at night and walk to Central Park. But I did it this one time. 
And as I got there, there was a woman standing there with her iPad. And I said, like, oh, oh, sorry, is there like, you know, she goes, no, 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 go in, go in, you're welcome. So, so I went <laughs> in and there was all these lights. So I was like walking towards the lights and the park was like almost empty. But then I, I could see that there was like somebody in the distance just playing these Stevie Wonder songs. So I kind of walked towards it. And I realised it was Stevie Wonder. Oh, my God. And he was rehearsing for a concert in the park the next day. (laughs) And there was like 20 of us just sitting there watching Stevie Wonder perform. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he did like Sir Duke and he did like all, you know, he did all the hits. And it was like incredible. And then after that, I realised, okay, this is like something I know that people don't know. Ah. Like if there's a big concert in the park... Then if you go the night before, you get like a private. So, <laughs> so since then, I've seen I've seen Paul Simon, I've seen Barry Manilow, <laughs> Billie Eilish. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, um, who are God? Who else? The Killers. Uh, yeah, fantastic. It's worth getting a flight. Totally. The money you're saving yourself. It starts in the afternoon before and goes through to like probably midnight these sound checks yeah yeah uh, and at some point the star is almost certain to come on there and do a sound check and sing a couple of songs yeah if you go to central park the night before a big concert in the park you will have a magical experience <laughs> i once did that by walking into a theater i walked past it to go for an audition and i had to wear a suit for this audition i had to be a businessman so i was wearing a suit And I looked rather official. And on the way back, I realised that I'd gone through the security cordon around this theatre and that I was basically by one of the open stage doors. So I I thought, what are they doing in there? I wonder what it is. So I popped in and went and thought, oh, I can't sit up in the gods, you know. Nobody ever goes up there. And I went and sat up there and then on stage walked the Rolling Stones. Wow. (laughs) And again, that with no one in the audience. No one there. No. Wow. I know, isn't it just great when that happens? It's the best thing in the world, yeah. Yeah. I tell you, the killers were particularly good because they just did Mr. Brightside and When We Were Young. Oh, yeah. And even though there was like 15 people watching them, including me, they really put on a show for us. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was like leaning over the stage (laughs) to us. Yeah. yeah. Sort of, we can't do it unless we do it properly. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Or maybe he just thought it was kind of funny to do like a full balls out performance to like 15 (laughs) people watching. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. When I was very young, I was filming something and they said to us, go and have lunch. We're going to film the band we're going to have in it. And we went, okay. And as we walked out, the police walked in Uh and they were at the time the biggest band in the world. And and we went, I don't think I I don't want any lunch. It's all right. We stay. And they went, yeah, of course. (laughs) So we sat down, the police went onto this tiny stage (laughs) and then Sting said, any requests? And I said, so lonely? And he went, okay, two, three, four, so lonely. And off they went. Wow. So I, I called out a request for the police. That's good. This happened to us and um, Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks. When I was at college, we occupied our building on Regent Street. I think it was it was either apartheid or, or they wanted to get rid of student grants. Mm. And somebody met Pete Shelley and told him we were occupying this building and he turned up and did like a concert for us. Oh, fantastic. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, just like again, like twenty people, him and a guitar. I kind of yelled out, "What do I get?" And he played it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> best thing in the world. Oh yeah, well, I wish I'd been at that Paul Simon concert. I I love Paul Simon, and that is absolutely a brilliant album, isn't it, Graceland? Oh my god, so good! And the whole concert. I mean, that album is great, and the whole concert. And he was very funny, and mm. he said. Uh, <laughs> when he was introducing uh, late in the evening, he he said, you know, I've got a lot of friends on stage here and I've got a lot of friends out there too. And everybody in the audience like cheered. Mm. And he said, no, no, I'm referring to just a few people over there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to take that concert then and put it into the time. It was just slightly bigger than the photograph, but we can fit it in. Right. Do you ever like say no to things? Do you ever refuse to allow <laughs> things into the time capsule? Do you know, I never have. <laughs> No. Okay. No, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? That I would become the arbiter. Yeah. It wasn't my idea. Mm. It's very much, if you want it, then you can have it. Right. Yeah. Good. Okay, that's good. <laughs> okay, well, I do number four. Number four, yes. A good one and a bad one, something you want to bury. That's right, yeah. Well, the other, actually, in the same box as the uh, Paul McKenna letter, there was a letter from Victor Lewis Smith. Uh, now, do you remember? Do you remember oh, Victor? great, Victor Lewis Smith. Yeah very recently died and mm. so I took over from him like my first proper job was as a timeout columnist and I took over from from Victor right and he like you know he was a great columnist just mm. brilliant and it took me a little while for me to find my footing mm. and timeout was full of letters saying you know this new guy is so shit compared to Victor <laughs> Lewis Smith and I got a letter from him and I wish I had it but again it's in storage somewhere and he basically just said, you know, don't listen to them. You're great. And I don't know him, like I'd never met him. No. Anyway, when he died recently, I, I looked for the letter. And I even went to the storage unit to try and find the letter because I just thought, you know, obviously what an incredibly kind thing for somebody to do. And it mm. just spoke so much about his character in general. And I would love to have tweeted a picture of this letter because mm. it was just such a nice thing. Anyway, I couldn't find it, and I and it bugged me that that I couldn't tell anybody about this really nice thing that Victor Lewis Smith did. So when I was thinking about the time capsule for you, I thought, well, this is my opportunity to say something about it. Yeah, take the opportunity, absolutely. Yeah. And it's really wonderful, I think, when people do things like that. In mm. your own life, when you get to meet people who have been an inspiration for you, mm. it's always exciting, isn't it? And for mm. them just to treat you as an equal, I always think, is the most thrilling thing. Yes, absolutely. And just the thoughtfulness of, you know, I must have been feeling bad that everybody was negatively comparing me to, to Victor mm. and, and for him to just reach out and do that. It does make me think, gosh, I wish I'd done more of that. In my, I, I haven't done enough of that and I should, I should have done more. Yes. when you die, those are the things people remember, like <laughs> leaving a good footprint, not a bad footprint, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and also yeah. some evidence of it yes. <laughs> by writing letters. <laughs> That's always a good idea. So do you think Victor thought, you know what, when I'm dead, he's going to tweet that and people are going to really like me. <laughs> Little did he know. That's, what, that's why he did it. He didn't give a yeah. damn about it. He was basically saying to everybody else, he's bloody shit, this bloke. This John, what's his name? It's terrible. It's going nowhere. Yeah. Going nowhere, but it makes me look good. So I'm going to encourage him to carry on. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult thing as you get older. You mm. more and more come across people who say, well, it was listening to you when I was a kid mm. that made me decide. That happens to me 
a lot, I'm delighted to say, that I meet a lot of young people in comedy who say, when I was at school, and you go, oh, fuck off. <laughs> but generally, it's really, it's a wonderful compliment. That's so nice. It's a lovely thing. Yeah, I very much agree. And I think if, if that happens and you sort of think, you know, if you feel annoyed, the bad way of handling that is somebody saying, oh, I was so inspired by you. And then they're more successful than you are. And you, like, you, and you start to feel like resent. Good. Can I have a percentage, please? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're all right, though, John. We're OK. Don't you worry about it. Because we, and I, I don't know why this has suddenly occurred to me, but we share a world record. Oh. And I don't think it's one that's going to be beaten. OK. We were both at the Albert Hall playing kazoos. Oh, Yes. There we are, for comic relief. That's right. That is right. Who else was there? Do, do you recall? Oh, loads of people. Um, um, Russell Brand, I think. Uh, Russell Tovey, I remember, was there. Uh-huh. My friend Rebecca Front, I remember chatting to her quite a lot. That's uh, right. Yeah, all sorts of people. Basically, it, it uh-huh. worked because the whole audience were given a kazoo, weren't they? And, and off they went. Yeah. My memory is so terrible. All I remember of that night is just a flash of me, like either walking up to the stage or walking down from the stage. And that's it. I remember nothing else. I just have a flash of, yeah. Can I take a one second pause? You can pause as much as you like, anytime you like. Yeah, go. Okay, I'll be back in in one second. Take as long as you like, John. Hello. Here we are. Hello. Here we are. You're right. I was list- I was listening to you talking about casualty. I can't remember who the actor was, but you were talking about being in casualty. Mm. And, and it just reminded me when I lived in London, I went up on some people were coming to like fix something on the roof of my building. So I went up onto the roof of the building with these like construction guys. And, I, and the last thing I remember before hitting my head and falling unconscious was... This is just like one of those early scenes in Casualty. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and then, bang, like the stairs, like, hit me and oh. could some, yeah, and I ended up in Casualty. Oh, my God. No, don't. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, well, you've done some extraordinary things. Did you discover the Bilderberg group? Mm. We'd all heard about that for a long time and nobody believed it to be true. Well, actually, before I wrote about it in my book, Them... Mm. I'm not sure how well-known Bilderberg was. It was sort of known in real sort of deep conspiracy circles. Yeah, that's. Uh, but most people thought it was just a conspiracy. Yeah, because it sounds like a conspiracy theory, this mm. idea that, you know, a bunch of powerful people meet in secret mm-hmm. and secretly rule the world from a hotel. You know, it it's so fits into that old kind of Illuminati conspiracy theory. It's just Bond, isn't it? It's Bond world. It's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, I went in 90s. And I think my kind of adventure with Bilderberg is sort of kind of what popularised it in sort of mainstream culture. Because yeah, I went and then got chased by their henchmen God. through the streets of Portugal. A car chase ensued. <laughs> it is Bond. Yeah. <laughs> so I went in, snuck around the hotel, you know, looking for clues and then left and then, yeah, I, I was being followed and we had a car chase. God. Um, I, I say car chase, but, you know, I was going 30 miles an hour and <laughs> so was he. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'd gone faster, he'd have sped up and then it would have been a real car chase. <laughs> car chase, unfortunately, you controlled. Yeah, it was terrifying. I stopped my car. I went up to the guy, tried to show him my press pass. Didn't want to know. Wouldn't look at me. 
He was following me, but he wouldn't look at me. God. So I phoned up the British Embassy. I said, I'm being chased by the Bilderberg Group. And she went, <gasps> and then she went, go on. <laughs> I said, I just heard you take a sharp breath. <laughs> Terrifying. Was that sort of, you're not really supposed to know about them? She said, what are you doing here? And she said, does Bilderberg know? You know, like, do you have like, I think she said something like, do you have their permission? Like, do they know that you're here? <laughs> wow. And I, she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. <laughs> uh, I said, would you, I said would, you, would you phone them and tell them that? And <laughs> then she phoned me back and she said, well, the good news is if you know you're being followed, they're probably just trying to intimidate you. Oh. And the dangerous ones would be those that you don't know are following you. Oh, my God. And I immediately thought, well, what if they are the dangerous ones? And I just happen to be very good at spotting them. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, Paul McKenna was able to take all that fear away from you. <laughs> God, that, that was real fear. You know what, though? That was a very big moment in my writing life because when I got back to London... A, I had like an amazing adventure, like to write about. Mm. Uh, and B, as I realised that like I was seeing the world through the eyes of the extremists, like, yeah, and the yeah. conspiracy theorists. So I, I very clearly remember thinking, I'm going to sit in my kitchen and I'm not going to, like as long as it takes, I'm going to make this the best piece of writing that I've ever done. Mm. And like all the ingredients are there to make it the best piece of writing I've ever done. And it's like, I think it's like chapter four of my book, Them, and it was like the piece of writing that, you know, really made me like become a proper writer. Yeah. Say. But it's disturbing, isn't it, when you've discovered that one theory that everybody's gone, oh, don't be ridiculous, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. And then you find it, it does happen. Yeah. You then start to look at the others and think, hang on a minute. Yes. And then you need to just, you know, rein it in a bit because yeah. else you just go, yeah. you know, there's so many people right now who've just lost it because of the algorithms and they just believe everything. And mm -hmm. it's very important to not do that. So yes. It's very important to kind of, you know, to be be like Robbie Williams, you know, have a foot <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the rational camp as well as the believer camp. Well, just in the world, in life, there are so many things that happen just because they happen, mm. and they happen by accident. Yeah. And that's it. And nobody's organised it. Nobody's organising everything. I always find you hear it a lot. People say, well, I'm a great believer in things happen for a reason. And I go, oh, really? Because I'm a great believer in things happen because they just happen. Yeah, yeah. People want to think that people secretly control the world because maybe they... I mean, you know, cons the conspiracies are real. Don't get me, you know, mm. powerful people do behave in conspiratorial ways. Yeah. But I think maybe also the idea that no one controls the world is just more frightening. Yeah. You know, that maybe we want, we want malevolent. Yeah, yeah. Part of us is comforted by that idea. Yes, yes, because if it's true that you have that and they are trying to control the world, you think, so actually, if we make enough effort to be good, mm. then that ought to counterbalance it. But in fact, if it turns out that they can't control the world and neither can you, then you go, okay, it's all just really down to luck, isn't it? Yeah. And just random, which of course it is. We're just headless chickens. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, I'll keep running as long as I can until I realise I've lost my head. <laughs> <laughs> if you do start thinking that, nobody controls anything and there's no meaning, then, you know, maybe the positive thing about that is you start to think, well, what's the best way I can walk through life? Mm -hmm. Be like Victor Lewis Smith, but, you know, write nice letters to people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lovely. Well, Victor Lewis Smith, bless him. And what a loss. Mm. So let's put his lovely letter into the time capsule. Oh. That's number four. So we've only, all we've got is one thing that you'd like to forget, really. Okay, well, I was thinking about that last night. I was thinking, you know, what is the one thing that, if it didn't exist... 
would really make the world better. Mm. And it's a flawed thought, but I thought, cars, Ah. cars. I would rather like a world where there's no cars, Mm -hmm. lots of trains, and I guess if you need to get to the station, horses, horses Mm. and buggies, (laughs) no cars. Cars, I have noise sensitivity issues, so cars make me feel like physically in discomforted mm. when when they go by noisily mm. especially up here in Hudson Valley where things are supposed to be quiet and then if a car zooms past you I find it very and you know and, and, and all the roadkill and, and not long ago I this is a sad story but I came out a couple of years ago like five in the morning there was a giant turtle crossing the road and I was so excited, mm. you know, to see this, like, and it, and it got hit by, you know, a car hit it. Oh, and no. the good thing that came from that, though, was that uh, all the neighbours would then get together with wheelbarrows. We'd, like, wheelbarrow the turtles to safety <laughs> during egg-laying season. So it became, like, a village-wide endeavour that we'd, like, pick up these giant turtles and, and like, wheelbarrow them back to the pond before cars got oh, there. Amazing. Yeah. It's, and it's not enough, is it? We were talking earlier about electric cars coming in. It's not enough because, actually, the other day I saw an electric car, a very large mm. electric car, go by, and it was incredibly noisy, and it's the tyres on the road. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole bunch to Teslas up here post-pandemic mm-hmm. and they're not as quiet as you want them to be. No. Also, they built this road near here called the 9G and it's right next to the Hudson River with the Catskill Mountains and so people who drive down the 9G get like the most amazing view of the Catskills mm. and the river but every time I drive down it I thought if this road didn't exist you could have all these lovely houses, quiet houses, looking over the Catskills. Yeah. But instead, it's like a fuck. It's like a freeway. Mm. I do hope that one of the things that driverless cars will bring to the world mm-hmm. is that most of us will not need to have a car. We just won't need one. Mm. It'll be pointless mm. because, like uh, Spotify with music, will be the same with cars. We'll just go mm. bip on our phone, and almost immediately a car will turn up. And there'll be so few cars on the road, there will never be any congestion. Mm. Because actually, most of the congestion is caused by parking. Right. Yes, and and one person person in a car like yeah. you know they've got the car sharing thing you know in lots of places in america i don't know if they do do you have like in britain are there these a, a little bit but not as much uh-huh. as they could do but again with as you say when you've got one car and you've ordered it yeah. it will be able to through computers work out that actually i'm going right past somebody else who wants to be picked up at 11 o'clock right so we will start they will get in with you mm. and therefore your journey will be um 10 pounds cheaper you go okay fine yeah yeah that that i would allow in my carless world mm. but yeah i just think the world would be a way better place yeah without the noise you know i was um when i did my last tour of britain i decided usually i just stay in like city hotels like if I'm giving a talk in Sheffield I'll just find like the nearest hotel Mm -hmm. but the last time I thought you know I'm gonna treat myself I'm gonna like after the show I'm gonna go to like country house hotels and and it was like delightful and blissful but so often you'd be in the grounds of like some beautiful country house hotel in like Bristol or somewhere and and you could just hear like Mm -hmm. because you know the M4 was a mile away and it was just constant the unpleasant rumble of the M4 yes yeah Yes, and we still have that very strange attitude, don't we, in towns. In England, they've now Mm -hmm. put in lots of 20-mile-an-hour speed limits, and people completely Mm. ignore it. 20's plenty. That's the phrase we're going to use, 20's plenty. Absolutely. Um, 
I was about to say something so clever. (laughs) (laughs) And it's gone. Damn me and my Um, talking. Damn me. Well, damn me and my adult old man brain. (laughs) I just can't hold thoughts anymore for more than a fraction of a second. (laughs) Gone. (laughs) Completely gone. Oh, well. It was something to do with cars. Then another time, next time. But in the meantime, I will take cars Uh and the pointless use of them and all the noise and the pollution and the danger and we will put them into the time capsule and in your world, they're gone. They're gone. You'd have the odd, yeah, exactly. As you say, like a sort of ride-sharing electric car, they they can still be there. And any form of horses are fine by me. And trains and all those sort of things. And lots and lots of trains. Yeah, Yeah. in a couple of hours, I'm going to get the train to the city. I'm I'm, uh, giving a talk about psychopaths in the city tomorrow, so I'm going to get the train down. (laughs) Oh, Uh, brilliant. The train goes along the Hudson River. It's Ah. very beautiful. Yeah. I do live, a great thing about living where I live is that I actually, for the pretty much the first time in my life, other than a couple of places in London, I live somewhere where like tourists want to go because it's so beautiful. Yeah. And the train journey from where we live in Hudson Valley down to the city, it's all along the river with the mountains and it's just beautiful. Beautiful. And I just feel very, very lucky to live somewhere that's has such physical beauty Mm. so that's in two hours time i'll be on that train fantastic well i'll I'll leave you to gird your loins Mm -hmm. as it were to face the psychopaths and (laughs) uh, and john it's been really lovely to talk to you and it's really lovely of you to do this it's been so much fun and i'm so pleased i don't know why i didn't discover that i I guess i just don't I'm not as podcast literate as I should be. Too many podcasts out there, but I'm delighted you have, and I'm thrilled that you're on this. And I'm going to keep going. I'm going to listen to your best, I presume did best of 2021 as well. They must be there somewhere. Yes, I'll (laughs) I'll be listening to all of your best (laughs) ofs. Fantastic. John, bless you. Well, it was an absolute joy. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Ronson. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you've got this far, I'm assuming you must have enjoyed it, unless you've been sitting there open-mouthed with horror for the last hour. If you did enjoy it, then do subscribe, rate, and review it, so that others know it's worth giving it a go. If you want to see what we're up to, then why not follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or all three, if you like hearing the same thing over and over again. If you like hearing the same thing over and over again, over and over again, over and over again. Right, the theme tune to my time capsule, which you can hear now, is available on Spotify and was written and performed by the highly talented Pass the Peas Music. And talking of talented, our producer was John Fenton Stevens. And this was a cast-off production for Acast, or Acast Plus if you'd like to hear it without ads. I'm still Mike Fenton Stevens, despite the rumours, and I hope to see you again soon for some more time capsule adventures. Right, I'm off to Smith's for some printer paper. Yeah, I ran out yesterday. Can't live without it. I tried Ryman's, obviously. I said to the man behind the counter, do you keep stationery? He said, well, most of the time, but if I'm itchy, I wriggle about a bit. Bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.